You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. When discussing the rise of great powers in Asia, American public discourse focuses almost exclusively on China. But its neighbor India, the world's second most populous country, has an economy and military that are enjoying robust growth. Can India develop into a great world power? The Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center at FSI recently hosted Ashley J. Tellis, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, to discuss the issue. Mr. Tellis was formerly a senior advisor to the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs and was intimately involved in negotiating the civil nuclear agreement with India. His remarks follow. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Let me start by thanking my friend Kathy Stevens for that extraordinary <coughs> generous introduction. A special thanks, of course, to Professor Shen and the center here for hosting me uh, for this inaugural conversation about India. It's wonderful to see friends I haven't seen in a while in this audience, Dan Snyder, Tom Figger, and of course, India's Consul General to San Francisco. The topic that uh, Kathy asked me to speak on today uh, is the question of whether India uh, could ever become a great power. For many decades, uh, this was a conversation that was actually quite active in the academy. And there was an old joke about India, which said that there are two schools of thought about India's future. The first school says, India is the country of the future. And the second school said, and it shall always be. <laughs> and so within the academy, uh, people considered India as a country of enormous potential, great resources, but whose arrival was always promised without ever materializing. And so it's not surprising that for the last several decades, people have sort of waited in the international community for India to play the role uh, that its well-wishers always wanted it to play. Now, as the academic debates on this question sort of evolved, we all got mugged by reality. And the reality is that in the last 20 years, India has exhibited dramatic transformations in its material capabilities and in its growth rates, which makes the question of whether India will ever become a great power no longer an academic one. Because if India does sustain the growth rates that we have seen in the last 20 odd years, then we have to take seriously uh, the potential uh, for India to become a great power in the way that the international system has seen great powers for at least the last four or five hundred years. What gives the question, I think, a particular interest, perhaps even urgency, is that for the first time, I think, in India's post-independence history, uh, India's political leadership now has committed itself to the objective of acquiring great power status. Less than a year after Prime Minister Modi took office, he challenged his diplomats and his bureaucracy to transform India from the balancing role 
that it has played since at least the end of the Cold War into a leading role. And if you look at Modi's definition of what a leading role is, an idea that was elaborated at great length uh, by the current foreign secretary, Dr. Jai Shankar, it's very clear that Modi's ambitions are really to take India to that small group of countries that essentially are responsible for the management of the international system. Whatever the locutions may be, whether you call India a leading power, whether you call India a rising power, Modi's ambitions, I think, are very clear. He wants India to become a great power. And a great power in the classical sense, that is a country that can shape its own destiny rather than have its destiny shaped by others. That's really what distinguishes great powers from all the rest. Great powers are system makers. They're not system shapers and they're not system takers. They make the system. And so Modi has committed India to this power. This is a remarkable shift in ambitions. And interestingly, because India is always interesting for more ways than one can say, it's an idea that has also proven to be somewhat controversial. It's controversial because uh, there is a deep ambivalence I see in India about the whole question of power. India's history has been a perpetual struggle between trying to reconcile the demands of power with uh, the benefits of virtue. That's a theme that recurs over and over again in India's history. And India's founding as an independent nation, which came about through a non-violent process, which was exemplified by Mahatma Gandhi, made the paradoxes of power even more pronounced. While the post-independence leadership clearly understood that power was necessary, perhaps even desirable, it's not something that Indian leaders have embraced without qualifications. And Nehru really represents, in many ways, this ability. He recognized uh, the need for India to realize its greatness after centuries of colonial rule. But he always thought of greatness in the context of what he used to call a real internationalism. And so it was not simply becoming great power in the classic power political sense, but rather realizing one's destiny in order to achieve a greater good. And so when one looks at the debates in India today about the question of India becoming a great power, it's, not, it's surprising to actually see quite a uh, variety of views on the subject. In the West, where notions of dominance are sort of natural to our conceptions of politics, if someone invited the United States to become a great power, I'm sure we would accept the invitation with alacrity and without too much reflection. But in India, there is a genuine debate about whether becoming a great power is good for India. And I want to just sketch some of those elements of the debate before I speak to the question of what can India actually become and what the constraints are. If you look at the spectrum of opinion on the question of whether India should become a great power, which I think is the first question to be engaged before we answer the question, can India become a great power? At one extreme 
you get someone like Ramchandra Guha, a public intellectual of note who will <coughs> at some point in the future speak uh, to you right here from this podium. And Goa has taken the, the position that India should emphatically not become a great power. And it should not become a great power because the process of becoming a great power would be deeply corrosive of India's democratic and development experiment. It's an argument that actually some has, uh, that has some echoes in the US debate as well. So for example, David Kaleo at Johns Hopkins University has argued on many an occasion that America's international role is something that should be eschewed, not expanded, because that internationalism is deeply corrosive of Republican constitutions. It destroys the balance of powers within the polity. It corrodes the culture of the country. And it forces states to do things that they might otherwise not have had to do if they were not locked into the rivalries with other great powers. And so Guha actually makes a very interesting argument that India should choose not to go down this path because it would undermine the Indian nationalist project uh, and bringing it, uh, <coughs> preventing it from being brought to fruition. Further away is someone like Sunil Kilnani, another public intellectual who's written a remarkable book, which if you haven't read, I would strongly commend to you, called The Idea of India. And Sunil Kilnani says that, yes, India should become a great power. But greatness must be defined in terms of exemplary domestic achievement. It's not about acquiring material capabilities and still less is it acquiring capabilities that allow you to shape the world or throw your weight around. For India to be successful, success must be defined as the culmination of development with freedom and the protection of diversity, such that this success comes to represent what Sunil Kulnani calls an alternative universality. I mean, there's a very profound argument actually in, the, uh, in this formulation. But Sunil is just slightly uh, to the right of Ramchandra Goa in that he's willing to countenance the idea of India becoming a great power, but a great power of a particularly unique kind. Further to the right is someone like Sashi Tharoor, who in the last government was the Minister of State for External Affairs. And Sashi Tharoor believes that India is a great power, should pursue greatness, but greatness should be defined in terms of its soft power capabilities, its ideals, its capacity to pursue it, its capacity to invoke support on the part of others. By that definition, uh, Tharoor has actually made the argument that India is already a great power because from everything from Bollywood to yoga, represents India's capacity to influence the world without coercion. So you can see in these variations, the effort to come to terms with the reality of what being a great power means and how India can preserve its uniqueness in the face of all the compelling structural constraints that push India towards a greater weight in the international system. At the extreme end, 
of the spectrum and actually in sharp distinction to all the uh, individuals I've mentioned in the last few minutes is someone like Bharat Karnam, who is a professor of policy at the Center for Policy Research in India. And Bharat Karnam basically takes a classic notion and says that India should become a great power, but it should become a great power of the traditional kind. It should acquire material capabilities, and very importantly, it should transmute its material capabilities into military strength. And that military strength should be used to reshape the international system in ways that advance India's interests. So that's the spectrum in the debate. Now, when Modi talks about India becoming a great power, where does he fit in? I would argue now, Modi has not spent time, shall we say, developing the theme of what he means uh, by great power. The Prime Minister is not a political scientist. Thank, good, thank goodness for that. Uh, if he was, India would probably be worse off. But leaving that aside, he has in his own embryonic way sort of tried to convey what he means. I think Modi's vision falls somewhere between that of Sashi Tharoor and Barakkanath. Modi certainly wants the rejuvenation of Indian civilization. And he really wants to revitalize the Indian state. But he does not believe that the international system is a comprehensively conflictual universe. And so why he wants to see India acquire hard power capabilities, especially economic capabilities, he does not believe that those economic capabilities should be mindlessly transmuted into military strength. Because he has a normative vision of what is good which requires power in order to achieve and to realize that goodness, but not become a slave of simple, hard-nosed power politics to the exclusion of that. And so when Modi thinks about India's rise, he thinks about India's rise in terms of the accumulation of material capabilities. But he sees that as necessary both in order to realize India's own destiny internally, as well as to be able to make contributions towards a more orderly international system. So Modi's vision of what, it, what India as a great power would be is in many ways a much more moderate vision than that articulated by someone like Bharat Karnad, but much more hard-nosed than the vision uh, that is encapsulated in Sashi Tharoor's view of the world. From my vantage point, and as a student of public policy, and as someone who thinks about India from the vantage point of both India and American interests, my view is that Modi's vision of India as a great power is actually a welcome one and a long overdue vision. Because it provides an anchor for the Prime Minister to drive a gigantic agenda of domestic transformation. And as I will uh, argue in the next half of my presentation, if India is to realize any uh, vision of great power status, it will have to do much better than it has in the past with respect to transformation both at the economic level, at the state level, and in terms of its material capabilities. 
So let me sort of end these, this first sort of elongated prelude by saying that Modi has at least settled one question, the question of desire. He has committed India to becoming a great power. But the question of capacity, I think, still remains unanswered. Does India have the capacity to become the kind of great power that Modi would like, let alone the kind of great power that Bharat Karna would want India to be? I think it's useful to address this question frontally by starting off with a simple proposition that in the last 70 years, India has demonstrated an enormous success, which was simply not predictable when India became independent in 1947. In 1947, there was a substantial body of opinion that was deeply skeptical about India's ability to survive, and even if it survived, to survive as a unified state. 70 years later, we have doubts about many things in India. But I don't think there is fundamental doubt anymore about India's capacity to survive as a unified state. And to survive as a unified state and a democracy in the face of extraordinary diversity and great poverty makes India a true outlier in terms of democratic theory. The stars are not particularly well aligned for India's continued survival as a robust democracy. And yet, India has repeatedly confounded the gods on this question. So India has been a success within. The real question going forward and this is inherent in Modi's desire that India become a great power, is whether India can now become a success outside. Whether it can build the requisite repository of material capabilities in order to be able to, of course, realize the destiny for its millions that its founding fathers had. But equally importantly, use those resources to shape and build a better international order. One, because of India's democracy, that will be more liberal, more internationalist in the best sense of the word, and preserve the values, certainly the values that bind the United States and India together. My qualified answer to the question of whether India can be a success in this sense is that it can. But it would require uh, deepened economic reforms, it would require major state and societal transformation, and it would require a different set of military capabilities. And I want to talk about these three dimensions for a few minutes. Let me start with the economics. In, since about 1991, India has startled the international community by demonstrating a capacity to grow at a level that most people had believed previously was close to impossible. For almost 50 years, uh, India's economic growth hovered at about the 3.5% level. From the late 1980s, it inched upwards towards 5.5. But since about 2000, it has moved quite smartly 
into the 7% band level, which is quite impressive. The real question now is whether these peak growth rates of 7% can actually become the trend growth rates and for a long period of time. In other words, if India can emulate Chinese success and grow at high levels of single-digit growth or even low levels of double-digit growth, for extended periods of time, the material capabilities that India needs to service that vision of great past status would be in the region. How does India increase its trend growth rate? There are four things that have to happen. And this is standard neoclassical economics, straight out of econ The first is you have to accumulate capital. And you have to accumulate capital fairly rapidly. Second, you have to be able to grow your labor force because ultimately all economic activity hinges on the contributions of individuals. Third, you must experience increases in what economists call total factor productivity, which is the efficiency with which you use the factors of production must progressively increase. And finally, you must be able to innovate because there has been no great power in history that has sustained great power status without being simultaneously a highly innovative society. And when one looks at these four aspects, the components that drive trend growth rates, one discovers that India has strengths, but also quite substantial deficits that need to be remedied. Take a simple thing like capital accumulation. Like many other countries in the third world, India actually has a relatively high level of savings. India saves about 30 to 35% of its GDP annually. Compared to, of course, the United States, that is an overly impressive performance. But there's a catch, right? So if you think of India saving, say, 30% of its GDP annually, and if you presume that there is a capital output ratio of, say, 3 is to 1, then dividing 30 by the capital output ratio, you roughly get about 10% annual growth rates, which is very impressive, because if India can sustain 10% annual growth almost automatically, then that's a great uh, asset to have in terms, of raising, in terms of raising trend growth rates. But the catch in India's case is that half of India's national savings are non-monetized congealed savings. Savings that either take the form of assets in gold or assets in physical real estate which, while important for the individuals who are engaged in the savings, also imply that they are not fungible resources that can be recycled. So when you start looking at the character of India's savings, the leakages in the savings system, and then the inefficiencies, because the calculation that I gave you assumes perfect efficiencies and transformation, India's trend growth rate could be much lower than is necessary for India to grow at the levels that are required. Look at labor force growth. India is really advantaged by having one of the youngest populations in the world. More than 50% of the Indian population is under 25 years of age. 65% of 1.2 billion people today are under 35 years of age. That essentially means that if you look at the Indian demographic pyramid, it's a demographic pyramid that looks classically like a Christmas tree. The bottom is huge. 
And these are young people who can be funneled into the labor force, who will be those who work and save. And the obligations to those who are not in the labor force are actually quite small because that's the tip of your Christmas tree. So if you look at all the major powers out there and compare their demographic pyramids, the Indian demographic pyramid is simply spectacular in profile. There is no other country in the world that matches the Indian demographic pyramid, including the United States. Of course, we do have a great safety valve called immigration. But if we didn't have that safety valve, we would be in somewhat unfavorable circumstances, even in comparison to But Indian demography has issues. India's poverty, uh, India's unwillingness and historic inability to invest in human capital, India's education system, India's weaknesses in healthcare delivery are all things that make a fundamental difference to India's population from being productive and creative. So you have raw assets, but those raw assets come with huge asterisks because of those limitations. Factor productivity. India's factor productivity has historically been quite abysmal. And it has improved since the reforms of 1991. But because a large portion of India's population is involved in agriculture and in informal manufacturing, those two sectors of the economy have the worst factor productivity. And that depresses India's overall factor productivity. When you look at innovation, there's actually a good news story. Because Indians are enormously innovative. And certainly India is far more innovate, innovative when you compare innovation as a function of per capita incomes. It's probably one of the most innovative societies when you control for income. But the problem with innovation in India is that it's innovation on a very small base. It's not innovation that has scale that can be utilized to generate the supernormal growth that the economy needs. So when one asks oneself, can India sustain increases in the trend growth rate for long periods of time? The answer is yes, but only if public policy moves smartly in the direction of increasing capital accumulation, investing in human capital, improving factor productivity, and creating a national innovation system to stimulate innovation. So that's your nuts and bolts, right? There's a second dimension that is equally important. Great powers do not grow simply because of the magic of the market. I know the ideology in the United States and the ideology in neoclassical economics loves the idea of the self-regulating marketplace. Right? But if you look at the historical record since at least 1500 for which there is good data, great powers do not arise simply because they had wonderfully efficient markets. Great powers arise because you had wonderfully efficient markets matched by extremely effective states. State power is absolutely critical if you want to become a great power. And why is state power important? State power is important because it is the state and the durability of the state and the effectiveness of the state which determines the effectiveness with which a nation can mobilize its resources. So the more efficient your state is, the more effective your resource mobilization is. 
And the more effective your resource mobilization is, the greater your ability to invest in those priorities that the state deems to be important for national purposes. Now, when one looks at state performance in India, the story is unfortunately mixed. Now, India has one great advantage, which also turns out to be a double-edged sword, and that is its basic security. India is basically a secure state. The enemies that it has on the outside are for most part weaker than itself. Now, whether the rise of China changes this in fundamental ways will be interesting to watch. But countries like Pakistan are much weaker than India is. So its external challenges historically have been modest. And its internal challenges have been modest as well. So India has enjoyed the fruits of security. But that benefit comes with a massive downside. And that massive downside is that when a state is so secure, it does not have rational incentives to mobilize resources in order to maximize power. And so if you look historically, those countries that maximized resource mobilization were those countries that actually enjoyed high degrees of insecurity. Because it's insecurity that compels national leaders to start looking around for where they can get resources fastest from. And so more secure states, paradoxically, end up becoming less efficient states because there's no premium put on mobilization. So Indian democracy, in that sense, is a double-edged sword because it's what keeps India secure within, but it also does not put a premium on raising resources because political leaders do not need to raise resources in order to assure either national survival or personal survival. If you are a political leader in a democracy and you lose an election, there's always a second chance. If you are an authoritarian leader losing power, there may be no second chance. And so the need to mobilize your resources and make certain that you never lose power becomes bad. So there is a real challenge that India faces with respect to societal mobilization, which paradoxically is a function of its own success. But there are bigger complications. The bigger complication is that India's state-society relations are deeply problematic. And they're problematic for various reasons. First, there is an extremely high degree of elite fragmentation with respect to national goals. At a very superficial level, Indians are united about many things. Take, for example, the great issue of economic reform. There is probably no Indian leader today who, if polled and asked whether he supports economic reform, would say that he or she is against economic reform. So at the most superficial level of consensus testing, all Indians are agreed that economic reform is required. The moment you push them with respect to what precisely must be done on economic reform, it is extremely hard to summon a national consensus. And so the question of elite fragmentation becomes a real issue. And democratic politics, again perversely, only exacerbates elite fragmentation because your first objective becomes the need to get reelected, 
which means the need to satisfy special constituencies that enhance the prospects of the election, rather than making decisions on the basis of what the national interests demand. Now, we in the United States have perfected this pathology to an extremely high degree. But India is no slouch where this is concerned. So what you get is the challenge of finding national leadership that can create a genuine national consensus in favor of hard decisions. And thus far, that has proved to be quite elusive. The second dimension of state-society relations. The Indian state is powerful in many ways, but along very important dimensions, it does not penetrate its own society sufficiently enough. There are vast swaths in India where the Indian state is simply absent, where individuals in the villages of India, which may not sometimes be very far from New Delhi itself, who will not see the presence of the state, who will not be able to encounter the state as all of us encounter it in the form of law and order, in the form of justice, in the form of administration. And so the Indian state's ability to penetrate its own society uh, leaves much to be desired. When one thinks about a very important dimension of state-society relations, revenue collection, the story is just as bad. No great power historically has ever become a great power if the state authority has been unable to raise taxes from its own people. If you look at India's tax-to-GDP ratio, it is simply the worst among all G20 countries. So if you look at India in comparison to its peers, a very important dimension of state effectiveness, which is revenue collection, shows that the Indian state still has a long way to go in terms of being able uh, to mobilize resources. So when one takes stock of this whole question of the infrastructural power of the state, the capacity of the state vis-a-vis -vis its own society, you discover that India has much more to do in terms of building institutions to get it to where it wants to go. Now, India has, of course, many assets. Among the greatest assets it has are the English language, investments to democracy, a Western system of managing an economy and rule of law. But these institutions are what it inherited in the aftermath of the Raj and because of the investments that India's founding fathers made. Unfortunately, not all these institutions have remained in good repair over the last 60 years. And so if India is to reach uh, its aspirations to become a great power, it will have to do much more than simply grow fast for the longest period of time. It will have to build up state capacity almost as a precondition to allow it to grow fast for the longest period. There's a third aspect which I want to touch on very briefly. And this is a sort of tricky one, hard to get a handle on. And that is the levels of rationalization in Indian society. It's very hard, an abstract notion. But rationalization has to do with whether your institutions, your rules, your modes of doing business are more rational or less rational. Those societies that have been exceptionally successful, and the West is really the poster child for success here, 
are those societies that have been acutely rational. And what does rational in this context mean? Rational in this context means developing social institutions, social practices that put a premium on efficiency. Because if you think of societies coexisting, then those societies that are more efficient than others obviously have a terrific advantage in the race to mobilize resources. Now, India, interestingly, is not as rationalist in this sense as it could be. And it's not, not rationalist because Indians don't know how to be rational, right? That's not it. It's not as rationalist because India has not developed institutions that put a premium on inculcating efficiency. And what are those institutions? Now, Max Weber the great German sociologist, after exhaustive work in comparative sociology, essentially made the argument that the rise of the West can be explained on one foundational reason. And that is market society created institutions that put a huge premium on efficiency. And because that efficiency slowly got incarnated in all social structures, the West essentially outran all its competitors. Now, Weber had little more to say than what my quick summary described. He tied it, for those of you who remember the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, ultimately to the Calvinist ethos and so on and so forth. Now, the Calvinist ethos and the Calvinist thesis are controversial, and you can leave that aside. But the latter half of his argument is, I think, quite profound irrespective of the source of rationalization, whether it's Calvinism or something else, the fact that the West really grew through markets, where markets put a huge premium on efficiency, and efficiency then becomes the engine which enables domination, is really what I'm interested in. And to my mind, India's failure to choose markets as the desirable form of institutional allocation is really what hampered it for the last 70 years. In a material sense, it prevented India's growth. But more importantly, it prevented Indian institutions from slowly imbibing the rationalist primacy of efficiency, which comes primarily from markets. Now, India is struggling 70 years later to slowly bring back markets as the allocative device for national decision making. But it will take time before those markets grow roots, before they become efficient, and before they become wide enough. So this is part of the agenda for the future that India must overcome if it has to get to where it is. Let's assume that India succeeds in doing all these things in the years in the years ahead, improves its trend growth rates, uh, improves the capacity of its state, increases the levels of rationality in its societal institutions. What else is left? What else is left is that India also needs military capabilities, and military capabilities of the kind that it has not invested in so far. For the last 70 years, India's military capabilities have been focused primarily 
on frontier defense. And it's completely understandable because India found itself in security competition with Pakistan, uh, security competition with China, and a whole series of internal challenges, even if they were not particularly potent internal challenges. So the Indian military, which is large and extremely capable by many metrics of comparison, is still a military that is focused primarily on internal security and frontier defense. No great power has become a great power simply by having military forces that are capable and effective only on its own national borders. In fact, the essence of being a great power is the capacity to influence outcomes further afield. And if India has to become a great power of the kind that Modi wants it to be, then it has to be able to think of contributions that go beyond simply homeland security and homeland defense. That means India has to undergo not simply a gestalt shift in terms of being able to shape outcomes over a much wider space than just the Indian subcontinent. It has to slowly acquire expeditionary capabilities and capabilities for power projection. Now, interestingly, there was a moment in India's recent history when India actually was the repository of expeditionary capabilities and power projection. And it was called the British Raj. The entire British Empire was run on the strength of military resources that were mobilized from the Indian subcontinent, whether it was on the battlefields of the Middle East in World War I, or whether it was in Southeast Asia in World War II. With the exception of naval forces, which were provided, of course, by the Royal Navy, the rifle strength of the British Indian Empire essentially came from an expeditionary Indian military. <clears throat> After independence, that expeditionary tradition was lost because India had to deal with challenges closer to field. But as India acquires the capabilities to shape outcomes in a wider world, it will require a new kind of military force. A military force that can meet all its obligations close to home, but also contributing towards peace and order over a larger <coughs> theater of operations. Now, to have expeditionary forces and to have power projection forces is obviously not an invitation to a responsibility. It's not an invitation to, as we would think of, throw your weight around. And India has been very measured in the way that it's thought of extra-regional military operations. And the United States has been a great champion of India making contributions to extra-regional uh, operations. Because the view of India has been that India is, because of its democratic uh, constitution, because of its liberal values, India could be a full partner in the American project of creating a liberal international order. However India chooses, if it wants to become a great power, that's where it has to go. So let me bring this story to a close. The potential for India to become a great power, even in Modi's uh, sense of the term, is clearly there. 
<coughs> but this rise to great power status uh, will not be automatic and it will not be easy because the challenges that India face go way beyond the merely technical. If it was simply a question of how does India tweak its monetary policy or how does India tweak its fiscal policy to stimulate growth, the challenge would have been easy. But what we are talking about is India's rise as a great power requiring more than just simply technical fixes at the level of pure economics. You're talking of nothing less than the modernizing of an ancient and very venerable tradition. And no one should have any illusions about the capacity of any individual or any class to be able to undertake such a gigantic social experiment, either on his or her own strength or in a quick period of time. The challenge is truly immense. And to understand it in all its complexity shows you both elements of the polarity that I tried to elaborate this afternoon. One, that success is possible and is worth aspiring for. Because a powerful and more capable India would certainly be good for India, and it would definitely be good for the United States. That's one polarity. But the challenges of getting there will be nothing less than gut-wrenching. Because they will involve the transformation, not just simply of one particular aspect of India's experience like the economy, but the transformation of its society, its polity, its state society relations, and ultimately its psychology and its ethos. But as India's well-wishers, we want it to get there because I think there is a conviction, at least among the elites in this country, in both parties, Republican and Democratic, that an India that is more capable than it is today is an India that is fundamentally in our interest. And therefore, after a hiatus of almost about 45 years, since at least the late uh, 1990s, the United States has made it consciously part of its regional policy, both in Asia and in the Indian subcontinent, uh, to bolster India's rise to power. Because we see that rise in, in capability as being fundamentally in American national interest. So I will end there and I will be happy to take questions for the duration of the time that we have. Thank you. Actually, thank you very much. Terrific. Uh, I'll hold back on a question and I see some hands up already if, uh, if uh, you're willing to uh, take a view. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, would you like to call on people? Yes, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. Okay, let's start. Identify themselves. Let's, yeah, and would you identify yourself and maybe stand up too if you don't mind? I feel like I'm in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> My name is uh, Kamala, and I grew up in India. <laughs> Two questions. One is you mentioned that uh, 
uh, Indian political leaders have had an ambivalent attitude towards power. How has Modi embraced that? Two, okay, how has Modi embraced his ambivalence to power? Two, his foreign policy, the role of Jai Shankar. How is he helping Modi shape uh, the foreign policy? Loaded questions. <laughs> I'm happy to take a crack at them though. I think Modi has, Modi represents in many ways the ethos of an India that has enjoyed success. Uh, there is still an ambivalence towards power in the sense that he's not a Bharat Kanad. He does not want power in a unidimensional sense, which is military power. And he does not want power simply in order to help India get its way. He wants power because he recognizes that it is a sine qua non for India achieving things both within and a stature on the world stage. So he is in that sense far less ambivalent about reaching for power than perhaps Nehru was. But I think this is less about a personality, Modi or someone else's, and much more about India's evolution as a country. India's successes have made Modi's view of power possible. If India today was where India was in the 1970s, Modi's aspirations for power would look like a caricature. So I look at it less as an individual attribute and more as a reflection of where India is. And as India grows in success, Modi will not be the outlier, he will become the norm. And increasingly Indian politicians at his level in the future will be more and more like him because they're really representing in that sense India's aspirations. But Mr. Jai Shankar, right? it's, it's a hard question to answer because I mean, Foreign Secretary is a personal friend of mine. Uh, and his father was, uh, you know, I learned my early uh, issues in nuclear strategy at his, at his feet. Um, he has played an extraordinary role because I think he, I think there are two or three traits that have given him the enormous influence that he has enjoyed. Uh, one is he is extraordinarily capable and cerebral. So he's genuinely a thinking uh, diplomat in the best you know, sense of what I mean by, by thinking. Two, I think he has got the measure of what his prime minister wants. And that's very important for bureaucrats to succeed. You need to sort of understand what your bosses want. And Jai Shankar, I think, has figured out exactly what Modi wants and can sort of appreciate that. And third, I think he is a, he is a uh, consummate civil servant in that he can take his prime minister's aspirations, which sometimes can be inchoate, sort of less than precise, and translate that into, you know, implementable policies <coughs> that actually bear fruit. And that, to my mind, is the ultimate skill of the bureaucrat, right? I mean, which is you take the political preferences of political leaders who sometimes are vague in what they want and translate that into a plan of action that can actually put into motion in order to realize gains for, for the boss. 
And so I think Jai has done really well in all these three counts. And I hope to God he gets an extension and he stays on and continues to do work for at least another few years. Yes. Uh, I'm Bill Draper. I'm Bill Draper, and uh, uh, my business took me to India 25 or 30 times. My observation was that the biggest, saddest thing about the uh, about India to ever become a great power is its education system for pu public education, higher ed, higher education, different story. Uh, and you mentioned taxation, and because the government doesn't have the resources to really make the education system work, I think, in, in today. I couldn't understand why income in India was never, was, was not taxed, basically. And uh, maybe you could explain why no one has really grabbed onto that. And, and sure. Built the uh, resources which sure. you mentioned in Delhi to be able to do something about the education. Sure. Uh, let me say about it, something about education and I'll say something about taxation. India set out to build an education system that would be world class, but it concentrated on tertiary education rather than primary and secondary education. And the the reason why it concentrated on tertiary education was because Nehru had the vision of essentially transformation coming from the top down. And so what he wanted to do was to create essentially a technological super state, which would be run and managed by elites which came out of great Indian universities. And over a period of time, there would essentially be a diffusion effect that would spread to the whole country. That was the model. And so India did exactly the opposite of what China did instead of investing in primary education and sort of empowering the base from below, India invested in the IITs, the IIMs, the institutions of science, and so on and so forth. <coughs> now, the downside of that model was that it has created a cadre of Indians who are extraordinarily well-trained at the top. And many of them are in this country. Uh, you know, because of the developments of the last 30 years. But it has denied average Indians the opportunity to be productive in a way that only education can make labor productive. Now India is struggling to, in a sense, set right <coughs> that mispriority. But it will take time. And two, it will take resources. And it's not financial resources, because financial resources are easy to come by. India can beg, borrow, and steal if it's all about money. The real problem is finding the human capital to sustain an effective education system at the base. So it's very simple. You can build schools, but if you don't have good enough teachers, those schools don't give you the return on capital they otherwise would. If you don't have a state system that is capable of enforcing standards, making certain that the teachers you pay actually come to the classroom, you're not going to get again the return on capital that your investments are paying for. So India's weaknesses with respect to education are first issues of strategy, wrong choice of strategies to begin with, and two, now weaknesses in state capacity preventing it 
from being able to realize the benefits of its increasing investments in education because the state does not have the capacity to enforce, does not have the capacity to set standards and so on and so forth. It's a parallel story with respect to taxation. It's not that India doesn't tax. India went through three phases. We are probably in the third phase. In the first phase, Indian taxation was actually very sensible taxation for its <coughs> level of economic development. That lasted till about the 1960s. From the 1960s onwards, India went into a highly uh, expropriative tax regime. Uh, this is from the time Mrs. Gandhi, Indira Gandhi, became prime minister. Tax rates went through the roof. There was a real uh, effort made to expropriate private resources and bring them to the state. That killed any incentives for compliance. Because the first thing Indian businessmen, Indian taxpayers did was figure out how to avoid the taxpayer's net. Now, India, post-1991, is slowly coming into the third phase, which is to rationalize taxes to the point where incentives to pay taxes are increasingly matched by better enforcement. Now, Mr. Modi's uh, great gamble on demonetization, uh, really, if you think of one of the upsides of this, of this uh, experiment, will be the impact on taxation. Because if you can move a larger proportion of transactions, which are either cash transactions or informal transactions, into the formal cashless economy, then recovering taxes becomes so much easier. And so one of the benefits for all the inconveniences of demonetization that I see over time is that if Mr. Modi sticks to the plan and really starts pushing uh, in terms of tax reform and moving towards a cashless economy or a less cash economy or whatever they call it, then India could actually enjoy the benefits of much greater tax revenues because there will simply be no social space to be able to conduct transactions purely through cash or through other informal means that cannot be regulated and surveilled. But this is truly a work in progress. And the good thing about this prime minister, as, as was Manmohan Singh, Manmohan Singh understood this uh, quite well. But Modi is really determined to get his hands around the tax problem. Because the, the incidence of tax evasion in India is simply disgraceful. Yes, sir. My name is Krishna Saraswat, a professor here in electrical engineering. So you pointed out many factors uh, which are problematic. You did not really mention anything about the infrastructure, the electricity, the water, the roads, uh, etc. Can you say something about that? Sure. Uh, I didn't mention infrastructure only because, at least from an economist's point of view, we tend to simply lump it under the rubric of physical capital, under capital in some way. But if one were to think of it beyond sort of pure economics, there is no doubt that infrastructure is one of the binding constraints on India's growth. And again, this goes back to decisions that were made at the founding. The Indian state made a I mean, there were several strategic mistakes. But when it came to infrastructure, the Indian state put 
much of its financial capital into an infrastructure intended to build private goods. So India got into the business of making everything from steel to wristwatches. But it did not put its financial capital into building public goods. And it's sort of odd because the one thing that the state can do far more efficiently than private enterprise is public goods. Anyone can build, build a steel plant or a watchmaking plant or a pharmaceutical plant. Because those are private goods. Those goods are paid for through market processes. India has put a lot of its resources into building private goods and denuded itself of the capacity to build public goods. Now the Indian state is realizing that the private goods market is essentially saturated. And its ability to grow further is held back because India's telecoms are poor, India's road network is poor, India's rail network is behind the times, the ports and airports. I mean, if you visit India, you know this first time, right? So the question that the Indian state now has is, how do you make up for the deficits of the last seven decades in a hurry? And how do you do it in a financing model that essentially does not break the bank? Now, why is this problem? This is a problem because this is where Indian populism has caught up with Indian politics. Just about the time when India has figured out that it needs to invest in infrastructure, which is a capitalization in the trillions of dollars, right? This is not small change. Indian democracy has turned out to be a little more successful than people <coughs> expected. And what does that mean? It means essentially that those people who have lost out in the Indian marketplace are trying to correct for those losses essentially through the political process. And they're correcting for marketplace losses through the political process by essentially demanding that the state give them a variety of payouts, everything from reservations to don'ts to jobs to food and so on and so forth. Now, if you're a politician in a democratic society, and if you want to survive as a professional politician, you better start paying attention to the demand pressures that are coming from the world. And so it's not surprising that in the last 20 years, the Indian state has been moving in the direction of what it proudly calls as a welfare state. It does not have the capacity to become a welfare state, to be very honest. But it's trying to create a welfare state essentially in the margins by giving people handouts of various kinds. From the point of view of infrastructure, the problem is both demands are coming to a head at roughly the same time. The demands of basically subsidizing the needs of about seven to 800 million people in different ways at exactly the same time when you need a few trillion dollars to sustain infrastructure investment. Now what Mr. Vajpayee tried to do when he was Prime Minister was to crack the public finance constraints in infrastructure by moving towards a public-private partnership. So he tried to basically create a PP, what they called a PPP model that allowed the private sector to invest in infrastructure and so on and so forth. The model worked great in theory, failed miserably in practice. It failed miserably in practice because of the institutional constraints of state capacity. I'll give you a very simple example. If we decided that we needed to build a new road in India, and you're the state, right? 
you fork up 50% of the cost of the road. I'm the private sector partner. I cough up 50% of the cost of the road. If that's all that was required, by the end of the day, we'd have a road. Because between the two of us, we've come up with 100% of finance. The problem is we may both have the money, but how do I actually get the right to the land on which the road is built? If there is no titling system in India that is clear and free. And so you and I can put up, between the two of us, 100% of the financing, but then the financing gets stuck because we don't have clear title to the land. Even when we have clear title to the land, there are other claimants, and the judiciary and the justice system moves very slowly, so if there are other claimants, adjudication takes forever. And before you know it, you and I are out a lot of money because we can't break ground to build this road. This is an indictment of state capacity issues. So India is now trying to sort of engineer all these revolutions simultaneously. It's trying to create new models of financing for public interest. It's trying to create new systemic frameworks for making certain that titles of land are registered and are clear. It's trying to deal with the challenges of a completely sclerotic uh, administrative system and judiciary, and so on and so forth. So the best one can say is it'll take time, and we have to be very lucky. We have to be very lucky to hope that all this works out according to plan. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Holly. I'm a two, two Stanford degrees in the 60s. I've traveled to India as a tourist, and I enjoyed reading about it. You mentioned labor. You also mentioned internal securities. The problem of women and girls in India is a major one. Apparently, some of the laws have improved, but they're not being enforced because of the uh, traditions. What and how do you see this changing in the future? And I hope it's not the time frame that you've been mentioning. <laughs> I wish I, I mean, I, this is a very serious issue, and it's a very serious issue even when I think about the problem purely as an economist. Because you are talking of essentially 50% of the Indian population, about 50% of the Indian labor force, right? And at a time when you have real constraints with respect to labor mobilization for all the reasons that I identified, not to be able to include a huge swath of your population productively <coughs> is like attempting to you know, run a sprint with your hand tied behind your back. Now, the problem that India has is that it is a traditional society that is undergoing a wrenching process of change. And in traditional Indian society, there was a very clear set of social hierarchies, whether those social hierarchies were by caste or by gender. And it worked at a time when, you know, India was pre-modern. Now, as India is sort of encountering modernity, all these stru structural rigidities are becoming constraints <coughs> on India's ability to go. <coughs> The problem is the scale is so huge. You're not talking of a problem of a few, few million people. You're talking tens of millions of people. And when you have challenges that implicate 
governments that implicate social norms, that implicate core social institutions like religion and caste, don't expect transformations in our They just won't happen. Because even if the government, which is more enlightened than many other Indian institutions, sets out to solve the problem by fiat, it cannot ensure the outcomes. So for example, if you look at the Indian Constitution, the Indian Constitution is a remarkable document, right? All Indians have the same rights, irrespective of gender, religion, caste, etc., etc. Is that true in reality? The answer is no. Can the government make it true in reality even if it wanted to? The answer is no. And so we essentially find ourselves in a situation where change will come, but the change will come much more slowly than you and I would like. And this is true for all societal evolution, right? I mean, we are expecting, I think in many ways, sometimes we are, our ambitions for India may be even unrealistic. Because we are expecting a huge country to engineer political revolutions, economic revolutions, social revolutions, and ideational revolutions within a generation. What's going to be the impetus? How is this change going to occur? The, what, what forces can be? The best forms of change will be economic. Because as you have economic opportunity, and as the demand, I'll give you a clinical answer, but you'll see what I'm saying. As the demand for labor in India increases, there will be a premium on educating women. There will be a premium on women entering the workforce. As they enter the workforce, the social mores that hold them back will slowly start eroding. They will be able to assert themselves and their rights will become issues for protection. And over a period of time, as they become essentially uh, individuals who are productive and enjoying an income, their ability to make choices will begin to change the social, the social circumstances in which they operate. The problem is everything that I described to you is not something you can do overnight. But that, to my mind, is the only lasting change. So government is doing things. Government is doing things essentially by mandating change. So government says, you know, women must be treated thus. Great. So good first step. But if government can't enforce that, because it does not have the institutional capacity to enforce it, it's at best an aspiration. So the only thing that makes the change enduring is when structures and structural circumstances change. And to my mind, you know, this is where Marx was absolutely right. The great uh, leveler of traditional society is ultimately market forces. Right? Market forces basically destroy traditional societies and replace them with, some, with something else. And that's the one thing that happened in the West. I mean, we went through this process. We just went through this process about 200 years ago. Tom? Uh, thank you, Ashley. Tom Finger, a fellow in, here at APAR. What's the principal vulnerability in India? You've articulated a number of things that are becoming ever more interconnected. 
Um, but is there a, a, a weak, weakest link? And is the process as it moves forward making India more vulnerable or less vulnerable, more resilient? It's a difficult question to answer because depending on the issue areas you look at, there are different kinds of details. But the one thing that worries me more, and this is probably a prejudice rather than a profound analytical point, is that it worries me that just when India is on the cusp of success, it begins to look more inwards rather than outwards. Mm -hmm. That it begins to take its bearings from elements in Indian society that would actually prevent India from engaging vigorously and successfully with the world. It begins to see integration with a wider political and international system as a threat rather than as an opportunity. That is what worries me. Because I look at the last 60 odd years and I see incredible success in the face of incredible constraints. And at a time when India was sort of, you know, chose not to link itself to the world, it's managed to do well despite that self-imposed constraint. And now it's part of the global economy, it's part of the global system of innovation. Uh, Indian democracy is something we're proud of. But there is always this, I have the fear that there will be elements in India's politics that have narrower visions of what being successful means. And they try and shape, constrain India's diversity and its liberality in ways that could ultimately do a damage. This was not a concern early on, but you know, I think it has become a concern in the last I would say a few decades. <coughs> right now, I think it's still bounded. I don't think <coughs> Indian liberalism is by any means defeated. It's still the dominant. Uh, it's still the dominant force. But you know, after seeing what has happened in Europe in the last few years, in the United States <coughs> recently, I think one has to be careful about ever taking the success of liberalism for granted. Mm -hmm. Not because liberalism doesn't have challenges, of course we have challenges, but simply to sort of take this, you know, to take Frank Fukuyama's optimism and simply say, because in theory, the liberal project is the one that makes the most sense. Therefore, in practice, it is the one that by necessity must survive and thrive. I think it's a huge empirical need. And that's what I worry about India, that simply because democracy secularism, liberalism is the, in theory, the best solution for India. Don't just take it for granted that that will remain in place. It goes almost like, maybe one more question? Yeah, sure, I'll take one more question. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Jennifer Chu, China Program, part of Shoran's Nae Park. Um, thank you for a really fascinating talk. Um, I'm just uh, curious to find out uh, what your thoughts are on India's perspective on China, because if you're talking about 
tremendous transformational changes. The other comparable country would be China. So what impact does it have in terms of its own um, thoughts about becoming a great power? And also just geopolitically, um, what is its um, attitude towards cooperation and competition with China? So very good question, and in many ways a fascinating question, because the final answer to the question has not been written. Uh, but let me say the following. The parallelisms between India and China are absolutely amazing in terms of the profundity of the change and the pace of change and so on and so forth. It's a complicated relationship that at one end, at one end has aspects of conflict. At the opposite end has aspects of cooperation. And somewhere in between is a sort of gray and muddied field of competition. Now, what is it that, that is located in each of these boxes? The territorial disputes, uh, the struggles for sort of ideational influence in Asia, I would put those into the conflictual baskets. The cooperative baskets are common Chinese and Indian grievances about mistreatment in the international order, uh, the claim for greater space and representation in international institutions. This is where I think cooperation is, the potential for cooperation is greatest. The areas of competition are mixed. Uh, there are elements in the economy. Um, there are aspects of China's relations with India's neighbors and vice versa, though less so vice versa because India does not have very deep and profound relations, say with Taiwan. But increasingly India's relations with Japan could potentially be in this uh, gray area of competition. So the challenge for India, and I suspect also for China, is to be able to maximize the areas of cooperation while putting the areas of competition and more importantly conflict at least to the side until solutions sort of present themselves. Now India and China to, to their credit uh, have managed their conflicts with a remarkable degree of sophistication. So unlike India and Pakistan where the relationship is highly raucous uh, and actually involves, you know, uh, murder, mayhem, death, war, violence, all that stuff. The relationship with China has actually been on a relatively even game. And even though there, there are, you know, sometimes ferocious disputes about, you know, issues relating to the border, Arunachal Pradesh, you know, Tibetan Tibetans, you know, can enlarge the mess. Both sides have sort of develop rules of the game that allow them to contain the areas of conflict. And that really speaks to the maturity of both Beijing and Delhi. The longer term future is where I have concerns about. And the question of the longer term future cannot be answered unless you think about another country. That's the United States. Because the United States is the world's neighbor, right? Everybody has relationship with us. And it can't be answered without us because Sino-Indian relations, Sino-US relations, and US-India relations 
will be the three binding elements that will determine finally whether Sino-Indian relations become cooperative or conflictual. Mm -hmm. To the degree that US-China relations become highly competitive, the incentives of the United States and India to come closer will increase. To the degree that Sino-Indian relations become highly competitive, the incentives for the US and India to come closer will increase. And then you can work out the you know, alternative uh, outcomes, literally in a binary way. If China-US relations become extremely intimate, you know, what happens to you? India-China relations. What happens to US-India relations? I mean, it's a fascinating sort of Rubik's Cube, right? You change one, uh, one dimension of the game and then others change as well. But my short answer would be the future of this relationship is not settled. Uh, at the moment, I think the elements of competition uh, tend to dominate the elements of cooperation. But thankfully, the elements of conflict uh, do not have ascendancy. Let's just hope it stays that way or gets better. I regret that we've run out of time because I know there were still many hands up. Uh, I think that's a tribute to all that Ashley has raised in such a stimulating and even sometimes provocative way and also to the fact that I think we're right to start this seminar off with Ashley and to have more, more sessions to come. So please come back for the others. Absolutely. Ashley, I hope you'll come back. Um, it's a big topic to say the obvious and uh, I really thank you so much for coming here to inaugurate for us. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies. <laughs>